I'm about to do what you've never seen a preacher do before. I'm going to fast forward through my sermon. I hope that you know what those pictures mean as you understand. Today we are talking about a courageous covenant. And we have so much to cover. And we're running along a little this morning, so I don't want to keep you here forever. Uh, just because your marriage should be eternal doesn't mean the worship service should. Speaking about a courageous covenant, we're talking about marriage. Uh, there was one time a wedding, and at that wedding was a little boy and his mother. And the little boy was asking questions about every part of the wedding ceremony. What does this mean? What does that mean? And as the bride came in and everybody stood up and she was elegantly dressed, beautiful dress, pure white, just sparkling, dazzling, took everybody's breath away. He said, Mother, why is the bride dressed so beautifully in white? And the mother said, because this is the happiest day of her life. And she went down and he pays attention and he goes forward and then he leans over to his mother and asks, Mother, why is the groom dressed in black? <laughs> well, sometimes we feel that way about marriage. And, and the, the reality is, boy, it's hard. And the statistics bear this out, that though Christians should be the most uh, married and happily married, uh, statistically speaking, when you look at the divorce rates of those who claim to not be Christians and those who claim to be to have faith in Christ, what we see is absolutely zero difference. So we have got to deal with this. This is so important as we've been talking about the family. This is one of the the most important load-bearing wall in your house. And the core text we're going to use is Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where the, the scripture reads this way. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This was God's original plan before we messed it up with sin and selfishness. So what I want to do this morning is, is delve into this, these two verses and take some takeaways from each one. And hopefully it will benefit you whether you're married, just newly married, whether you've been married many years, or whether you're considering being married. I hope that you'll take seriously what sadly we in the church... Have not. First is that marriage takes maturity. Verse 24 of Genesis 2 says, That is why a man. Now, this doesn't have to do with your physical age. There are very old people who are very immature, and there are very young people who are very wise. What maturity has to do with is in your thinking. When you learn to think properly, you take a mature attitude. Remember the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul, he spoke out to them. This was a very immature church. They had a lot of problems. If they were a marriage, they were on the brink. And Paul said to them, I want you to not be focused on spiritual gifts of prophecy and healing in tongues. I want you to focus on the greatest spiritual gift, which is love. Now, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 13 is, is this beautiful gem that Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like 
a child. But when I became a man, and here again speaking to maturity, I put the ways of childhood behind me. When you enter into marriage, what you're doing is introducing two parties. Those two parties are not the husband and wife. The two parties being introduced in a marriage is you being introduced to the real you. You see, you have in mind how you are. You have a picture that that you act a certain way and talk a certain way. And then you have the real you that everybody else sees. And in marriage, that's the introduction. For the first time, you realize, as Tim Keller said in his wonderful book, The Meaning of Marriage, that you are not as noble nor as easy to live with as you thought. We are born self-centered. I hear a little child crying. I'm not going to call you out, but this is a perfect example. That little child does not care, does not care. Uh, if you got a little infant at two in the morning and you're tired and you're exhausted, that little child doesn't care. They're hungry. You understand? We're all of us born that way. This morning you sat in the seat you sat in because you like to sit there. You, you thought about the songs that you like to sing. We are so self-centered and we can't even get out of it. And marriage is the tool that God uses to get us out of ourselves. Sometimes with my children, we're, I'm trying to train this out of them, and I'll tell them about the Hubble telescope. I'll say, hey, son, did you hear about the Hubble telescope? He'll say, no. What's Well, he used to say, now he knows. He'll say, well, what's the Hubble telescope? Hubble telescope is the most, one of the most amazing scientific marvels that, NASA, marvels, marvels that NASA has ever created. It's a telescope. It doesn't sit high on a mountain. It's actually been launched into space, sits on the edge of our atmosphere, looks into the deepest reaches of the galaxy. And when they looked through the Hubble telescope, do you know what they found? It turns out that you are not the center of the universe. See, that was just free. You can have that one. Okay, so marriage takes maturity, meaning you've got to get out of yourself. So secondly, marriage needs boundaries. A man leaves his father and mother. Marriage is creating a new home, a new family. Leaving Both parties are leaving one covenant family and creating a new home. And to do this requires Boundaries. When I counsel with a young couple that's getting ready to get married, I say, you have to be ready. You have to be ready to, to form your own home. And I know your family is going to have an opinion and your family is going to have an opinion. But you get to decide. And you know where that plays out? The wedding ceremony. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody wants to be seated this way. Go this song. Do this. And who's it up to? The bride. <laughs> She gets to decide. And it's the same way in a home. You have to decide. You have to draw your physical boundaries, your emotional boundaries, your spiritual boundaries. Remember in Joshua 24, 15, when he said, you've got to choose either this God, these gods that we're living, of the land that we're living in, or the gods that you left. But as for me and my household, we are going to serve that God, that is a boundary. When you enter into a new family, it's so important that you establish boundaries so that you don't let in-laws intrude and become outlaws. So you don't let anyone who's not in the family pretend like they are in the family. So you don't let the children call the shots. In other words, let the inmates run the asylum. 
You don't let, you don't cross the boundaries. Proverbs chapter 22, the wise man said, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. Well, you know, God has some very clear boundaries in marriage. He says the husband is to be the head of the household and to love his wife and to serve her. I'm I'm so sad that the verse left out verse 21 this morning because verse 21 is crucial, crucial to understanding a gospel marriage. And it says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Another of God's boundaries is the wife submitting to and showing respect toward her husband. And the world hates that. That's the most politically incorrect, misogynistic thing you've ever heard. Well, we're going to talk about that. God says the parents are to be in charge. Children are to honor their parents and obey their parents for a reason. So these are the boundaries that God has. And outside of those boundaries, you can set your own. Parents get to decide what time bedtime is and curfew and what age you get an iPhone. Parents get to decide. And it might be different from one to the other. And I'm, I tell my son, I'm sorry, son, you just got the, you just got the short straw when it came to parents. You just got mean and a dictator and just, we're not a democracy at all. But that's our choice, you see. And you parents have your own choices to make. Number three, marriage begins a new family. This kind of talks about the boundaries idea a little bit more. But, but. When God wants you to leave one family and leave another, it's not that you have two individuals, is that you create now a new family, a new home. And here's how God designed the family. One man and one woman for one lifetime. That was God's original plan. And human beings have tried to redesign that, and you're thinking all about modern-day culture and, and the horrible shape that the world is in. And that's true, but that's not new. Human beings have been redesigning God's plan. I know your Bible. We'll get people who say, was it right? Look at these characters of faith in the Old Testament. They had so many wives. Is God okay with that? No, God's not okay with that. But the Bible's an honest book that starts with God's plan, and then the rest, most of it, is how we mess it up and how God steps back in and redeems it. So let me be just very clear with you. God's plan for the family has zero, I mean zero, to do with a man marrying a man or a woman marrying a woman. That, that is not marriage. I don't care how the world redefines it. God defined it first, and he defines it forever. Now, if you're in a marriage, I can't get you, you don't need to be worked up about all these other people getting married. You need to make sure your marriage is doing the right thing. That you are treating your wife in the way that she's to be honored and that your wife is treating you in the way that God calls you to treat or her to treat you. So you have to be thinking about the family. And this is what God calls us to do, not just to think about how the world has messed it up with polygamy and homosexuality and divorce and incest and adultery. We've messed it up so many ways, you know, occasionally we'll have to add on to the building or make some changes and you'll see Clayton and he'll go and he'll have either with Josh Herman or with somebody and he'll have the old blueprints rolled out. I mean the the old blueprints 
and he'll roll them out, you know, and they're looking at here was the wall and why did the builder do this and what's here and what's this measurement. It's all right there in the plan. And that's what we got to do if the church is going to take back marriage. We got to open the blueprints. We got to look at the plan. You think it seems so simplistic. It's just a couple of verses. Exactly. It is very simple. It is far from easy. But God has a plan and we need to stick with the plan. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 19. Haven't you read? He's telling this to scribes and Pharisees, sort of an insult, by the way. He's saying, haven't you read? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. You'll hear people say, in your world especially, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexual marriage. Lie. Lie. Take them to Matthew 19 and just show them. Ask them gently to read verse 4. He did. He did so. He went back to the very beginning. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 2. Absolutely. He was there when that was written too. He says, pay attention to what I wrote. Now, if you don't remember, he's answering a question that they had about divorce. He said, if divorce is so wrong, was their question, why did Moses allow it? And he says, Moses allowed it because your hearts were so hard. If you have a marriage problem, you don't just have a marriage problem. You have a heart problem. So they are no longer two, but one. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Number four, marriage requires commitment. In Malachi chapter 2, the verse there says, I, the Lord, hate divorce. And it, it doesn't say, I want you to understand, if you're divorced, it doesn't say he hates divorced people. But it does say he hates divorce. Why did he point that out? Because a divorce is a splitting, it's a tearing of the covenant. And in this time, something that we don't understand in the age of making and breaking agreements all the time, when you made a covenant, that was a holy binding word. In fact, when you made a sacrifice as part of the covenant system, the implication was, may it happen to me, what happens to this animal right here if I break this covenant? And God was saying, I hate divorce because it's a tearing of the fabric of the family. Now, let me tell you this morning. My parents have been divorced 30 years. And if you think for a moment that kids get over that and it's all going to be okay, let me tell you with every fiber of my being, it does not get easier. For my whole life, I've struggled with that. I have to have conversations with my children about the reasons for the tearing of the covenant. It has brought so much pain and so much heartache and so much difficulty. And the world says, no, it's fine. Just go get married. Just be happy. No, no, no. If you're in here this morning and you're on the brink, you've just been fighting like cats and dogs. You're going at it all the time. You don't know if your marriage is going to make it. And you, you're hearing all this advice that says, you know, you just need to relax and let go. No, hold on. Hold on with everything you've got. Don't allow the covenant to be torn 
God hates it, not because he hates you, but because he knows the damage that it causes. Oh, it's like ripples in the pond of the human soul, the damage that divorce does. And again, if I know I'm preaching to some divorced people. I am not trying to pile guilt on you because if anybody, divorced people know what I'm talking about. They know they should be amen in the loudest. Please hold on to your marriage. Invest in it. Give time to it. And be committed. Marriage, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed be kept pure. For God will judge the, the adulterer and the sexually immoral. This morning, I want to ask you, if you've been married 10 years or less, would you please stand? 10 years or less. Please. Please hold on to the covenant and don't give up. Hold on to the covenant that you are in with everything you've got. And if you're thinking of letting go, let the church go. Come talk to me. Come talk to Elaine. Come talk to a shepherd. But do not let go and let the church encourage your marriage and your covenant. Because what you're building is a foundation for your lives of your family and your children's family. Please sit down. If you've been married between 10 and 20 years, please stand up. Been married 10 and 20 years. Oh, these are those hard years. Young children, teenagers, it gets to be, well, adolescence is called the turbulent years. and It's not an easy time. This is the time when you can most easily let your focus be on your children instead of one another. I want to encourage you to hold on to your spouse. Don't let go of them. They are number one. I want you to stop looking at me. Just look at if your spouse is here. Look in the eyes of your spouse for a minute. They, they are number one. Don't let those little ankle biters get in the way. You. I story from Brian Middleton when he was in this age of life. You may sit down. He and Kathy would be in the bedroom. The door would be closed. Eight children. Lots of knocking on the door. Brian's reply was, is anyone bleeding? Is any part of the house on fire? Then it can wait. There's a man who's still married. Hold on to the covenant. You let your spouse be number one. If you are 21 to 30 years married, please stand up. Did I just ask for that? No, 21 to 30 years. Stick in it. You're, you're halfway through this marathon. I know. I know. It feels like some days you might just die. But hold on to your vows. Hold on to each other. And never forget the promise. If you've been married 30, you may sit down. If you've been married 31 to 49 years, stand up. 31 to 49 years. Just now. Just now. Now, now life gets good. You get to have grandchildren. As Zig Ziglar used to say, if I had known they'd been so much fun, I'd treated their parents a lot better. <laughs> it's a good time, but, but encourage your, your children who are married. Encourage them. Remind them what it's like. Counsel them. Guide them. Love them. Don't just spoil your grandchildren. Love your children. 
You're leaving a legacy for them. And, and you may sit down. And finally, last, but oh, certainly not least, the examples for all of us. If you've been married 50 or more years, please stand up. 50 or more years. That's absolutely. That's absolutely appropriate to do. Huh. been together at least 15,000 days with your spouse. They're, your spouse is a whole lot wrinklier than they used to be. You have a seat. But you've made it. Now listen to me. Now if you just sat down, I need to encourage you because we want to applaud you. That's appropriate to do. But you need... I need to ask you to pull some some people who've been married fewer than 10 years or 10 to 20 years into your life and just go have breakfast with them or coffee with them or invite them over to dinner and just encourage them and love them and encourage the covenant. Oh, my goodness. Number five, marriage means submission. Oh, how we hate this word. Oh, how it gives us so much difficulty. Ephesians 5 Start now in verse 21, because that precedes the verse that you, there's a little title that is not in the original text. And Ephesians 5:21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for your spouse. No, for yourself. No, for anyone else. No, for who? For Christ. Marriage is the most beautiful powerful, living picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, now, Ephesians chapter 5 says that husbands are to love their wives and give themselves up to make their wives holy. Wives are to submit to their husbands and love them. I want you to follow me here. When we talk about the headship of the husband... Here's the problem that gives the world so much consternation with this issue. When we see the husband is the head of the family, what they get a picture of is Archie Bunker. I'm serious. And some husbands think that way. God forgive you. That is not what spiritual headship is about. When Jesus called the men to lead, think about his apostles now for just a minute. The apostles, they were getting popular. Jesus was drawing crowds. And the apostles were thinking, oh, hey, this guy's going to be king. And, hey, we're, we're the 12 closest friends of the king. Things are going to be pretty good. We're in a, sitting in a pretty good position. And so James and John's mother says, would you do me a special favor, as only mothers can do, would you do me a special favor for my boys? Let them sit on your right and on your left. Now, Jesus, knowing what kingship meant, knew that that mother did not know what type of crown he was going to wear. It would not be a king's crown. It would be a crown of thorns dragged into his flesh. Why? Because he loved him. That's what sent him to the cross was his love for him. He laid down his life. Father, not my will, but yours. To redeem his holy beloved bride. Don't you understand? You as a husband, it's not about sitting in your chair and bossing her around telling you to make you a sandwich. That's not it at all. It's about loving your wife. It's about willing to give yourself up for 
her to make her holy. And wives, you think, oh, I don't have to submit. Man needs a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. I'm not submitting to anybody. We've let that attitude seep into the church. Now, if you have a husband who loves himself enough to give himself up for you. To work extra hours to provide for the family because he's a man and he's going to provide. He's laying himself down for you. When you're submitting to him, you're submitting to a loving, faithful, God-fearing man who loves you like Christ loves you. Now, I want you wives think about this. Philippians 2. In your relationship, this is verse 5, Philippians 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality something to be grasped. The big movement today among females, especially in some horrible, horrible movements, is that we just have to be equal. And I'm not saying God didn't make men and women equal, but they're different. And what, what Paul calls us to is in our relationships to lay down what you deserve, to lay down equality and take on the very nature of a servant. Mutual submission looks a lot like Jesus serving the church. This is why Paul would say, talking about husbands and wives, this is the same thing about Christ and the church. But what he say? It's a profound mystery. Oh, what a beautiful, holy thing marriage is. And I describe Philippians 2 and Ephesians 5. I think I can do it better by showing you a picture. Let me introduce you to Rusty and Jean. These are my wife's great aunt and uncle. The time this picture was taken, they were in their 80s. They had been married 63 years. And life changes a lot in 63 years. Jean, if you can't tell from the picture, is in a wheelchair. She's suffering from multiple sclerosis. She has, see, since this picture was taken, has gone on to her reward. But I watched that day as Rusty wheeled his wife in. We were there for Thanksgiving. He set the brakes and made sure she could see everybody, talk to everybody. When it was time to eat, he went through the line. Did he get his plate? No. He filled her plate with the things he knew she could eat. He brought the plate to her, made sure she was taken care of. He sat by her and ate with her and dabbed her face and and took care of her. When she was in a place where she wanted to be somewhere where the wheelchair wouldn't go, he'd take one arm around this side and one arm under her legs, and he would lift and carry her to where she needed to be and sent her down with with the gentleness of a butterfly in her seat, made sure she was taken care of. And then when it was time to go, he lifted her back up and put her over back in the chair, wheeled her out gently as could be, put her on the ramp. And this is when I took the picture of him securing the straps down in the van so that they could head back to their hour-plus drive home. Do you understand what mutual submission is all about? Who's driving the van? Rusty. Who's taking care of his wife? Rusty. What was Jean doing? Submitting. Because she knew she could trust him. 
That's what marriage is all about. And the world doesn't see that. And the, that's why the world doesn't see 63-year marriages either. And the church ought to see a whole lot more of them. His love for her and Jesus' love for us is inspiring. Marriage is a process. Great marriages don't happen by luck or by accident. They are the result of consistent investment of time, thoughtfulness, forgiveness, affection, prayer, mutual respect, love, and rock-solid commitment. Marriage, indeed, takes three. I had a video I wanted to show you, but unfortunately too much ground to cover. So I'm just going to put it out on social media pages to understand what it's like to be broken together. Let me finish with this final, process, final thought. Marriage takes intimacy. Now, I've spent the whole sermon on verse 24. We're going to spend the last point on verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they both felt no shame. See, when I read that verse 25 to my children right now, age 11 and 5, they think that's hilarious. Naked. <laughs> you know what that tells me? They're not ready to be married. There is an intimacy that comes, that can never come. And I just need to look at you all right now. And I know you're taking notes diligently on your phone. I've seen you doing it the whole time. I need you just to look at me for a second. The fullest, most beautiful kind of intimacy that God has for you. will never happen before you're married. It will never happen before you're in covenant with someone. I think how they call it today's culture is Netflix and chill, which means basically, I want your naked body, but I don't want your naked soul. It's the most shallow, self-centered type of love that the world's trying to sell you. I don't care if it's your bae. Boyfriends and girlfriends do not get husband and wife privileges. The other day I was working in my garage. Pulled out the toolbox. was a tub of, su or tub of <laughs> a little thing of super glue. That super glue is designed for a purpose. To bond things together. And on the back are some instructions on how to use it. But if I take that super glue and just dribble it in my hand and put it together, leave it there for 30 seconds or so, oh, it won't hurt me. Friends with benefits. It's a lie. Because what happens with what God intended for super glue is when two things are together and then they don't intend on remaining together and you pull them apart there's a great deal of ripping and tearing and pain and drama and dysfunction because God intended superglue to be used one time so so be intimate with your spouse everyone else Study your spouse, love your spouse, don't stop dating your spouse. I don't care if you've been married 50 years, you ought to take your wife out on a date. You ought to remind her that you love her at all times of the day. Study your spouse, 
be a student of him or her. Make your marriage a living example of love, trust, and submission to Jesus. Well, we've run far long as I promised we would. But I want to encourage you, if you're in a marriage, stay committed to the covenant. And if you are not in a marriage, I hope you'll take these principles. If you plan to be married someday, maybe God's called you to be single. That's okay, too. But God needs you to trust Jesus with everything you've got. And he needs your family, he needs your marriage to be built around his plan, not anyone else's. If you have any needs this morning, please come as our elders will be here to meet you as together we stand and sing.